Al Jazeera podcast. An impending humanitarian catastrophe for Palestinians in Gaza. The words of UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He's invoked rarely used powers to direct the Security Council to take action. But will the move have any impact on Israel, the US or its other Western allies? I'm Tom McRae and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our guest now. In Denver, Colorado, is Mark Leon Goldberg, who is the editor-in-chief of UN Dispatch, a platform which provides coverage on UN-related issues. In Dublin is Jennifer Cassidy, a lecturer in diplomacy and international law at the University of Oxford, as well as a former diplomat attaché to Ireland's permanent mission to the United Nations. And in London is Chris Gunnis, a former spokesman for UNRWA, the UN's relief agency for Palestinian refugees. He's also founder of the Myanmar Accountability Project, which is a humanitarian organisation. A warm welcome to all three of you. Thank you uh, very much uh, for joining us on Inside Story. First of all, Mark, if I can begin with you, can you just explain how significant this move is from Guterres? Does it actually mean anything or, or is it largely symbolic? So it's institutionally significant because this is only the sixth time since 1945 that a secretary general has invoked Article 99, and it has meaning to the extent that it compels the Security Council to hold a meeting on the issue to which the secretary general wants to direct their attention. But beyond that, it's hard to measure the impact of this specific meeting because the kind of broader geopolitical dynamics that we're seeing at the Security Council towards the Israel and Palestine crisis really haven't moved all that much since the last time the Security Council met on this issue, which was November 15th. Jennifer, first of all, just how powerful is this move from Guterres? And are there any potential risks in in doing this uh, to him? Could it potentially backfire, do you think? Well, as noted previously, this is the most powerful tool that uh, the Secretary General has in his diplomatic toolbox, if you will. It is the only thing that can allow him to make a stand, to speak up for the crisis. Unfortunately, as, as was noted, he cannot have a vote on the Security Council and he cannot remove the veto. And that is mm. the primary blockage to the, if not the sole blockage at the moment, to the UN calling for a permanent ceasefire that is the veto of the US. Now, regarding could this backfire on him? No, um, not not to the extent of the critique he's already received. He's already been called out by Israel after this. They, they said that the Secretary General has reached, quote, a new moral uh, low. And they said he was siding with Hamas. Now, they've been saying this since the first moment that he spoke up um, against this humanitarian crisis. So the majority, if not the overwhelming uh, number of UN states are in support of a permanent ceasefire, are in support of this uh, charger being uh, invoked. So, no, the only criticism and critique he has uh, is of the state of Israel at the moment. So I don't think it can backfire regarding the... position he's in now. 
Yeah, and, and uh, as we mentioned uh, in the introduction, uh, he's basically said that there is an impending humanitarian catastrophe. But, uh, Chris, people in Gaza have been saying that, especially uh, within UNRWA, have been saying that for, for weeks, if not for more than a month now. So why do you think Guterres has triggered Article 99? Well, I think there's several reasons. I think, first of all, he realises that the situation on the ground has reached an unimaginable stage and that for every hour that this conflict goes on, the wider the chance of a wider peace uh, being brought to the Middle East recedes, um, as I say, with every hour that passes. I think also, let's not forget UNRWA, over 130 staff members of UNRWA have been killed. And I'd like to think that Mr Guterres would draw the council's attention to that fact and highlight the fact that, you know, no uh, in no single conflict have the, has the UN lost so many um, workers. But I think also he is concerned that this is going to ignite a wider conflagration. And he's pretty much said so. You have a situation which, as you've said in your introduction, Israeli ministers, the prime minister himself, mm. has called for an Amalek biblical genocide against the Palestinians. You've got Israeli ministers calling for a, a nuclear bomb to be dropped on Gaza, which at least, I guess, confirms that Israel does have a nuclear bomb, which exposes, by the way, some of the hypocrisy that it apparently is OK for one of the most far-right um, racist religious organizations, governments in the Middle East to have a nuclear bomb. And yet there's great concern about Iran even developing one. So I think, you know, at a time when 150,000 Hezbollah warheads are pointing south to the cities of Haifa and Tel Aviv, at a time when that northern Israeli border is warming up, at a mm. time when you've got an increased American military presence, of course, the number one diplomat in the world is extremely concerned that the tinderbox is very dry in the Middle Middle East, and there are sparks flying around all over. Yeah, indeed. Mark, I know that you've got your ear to the ground uh, in the United Nations. Can you just give us a sense of what's been the reaction uh, since he invoked Article 99? Uh, so the really only player that matters at this moment at the Security Council is what's going to happen with the United States. You know, the last time that the Security Council met on this issue was not until November 15th. And then the United States abstained rather than vetoed a resolution that at the time called for more limited humanitarian pauses. Now, the United States is still reluctant to endorse a full-throated ceasefire. They say that they want to work directly with Israel behind the scenes to get them to ease up on the uh, targeting of civilian areas and also let more humanitarian aid in. And, you know, thus far, the United States still seems committed to that approach. The Security Council will only go so far on this issue as the United States lets it. And right now, it does not seem that the United States is willing to endorse a ceasefire. Jennifer, the draft resolution that's been uh, put forward by uh, the UAE that's calling for a ceasefire, that's really the only crucial thing that, that actually has to happen for anything to change, right? Yes, uh, exactly. So the only thing that makes a resolution legally binding within the international sphere is for the UN Security Council to pass it. Now, that's not for it to be passed by the five members and then the 10 non-permanent members, uh, it has to be um, not vetoed by any one of the five. Mm. So for the first to be made legally binding, it has to pass. 
So we're at this moment, I unfortunately am extremely pessimistic that the U.S. is going to, um, you know, sit back and allow this to pass. I think, I believe the U.S. is going to use this veto. I was sitting in the U.N. Security Council meetings during uh, the time when the Syrian war started. And there was, I remember vividly that there was an announcement that there was 4,000 deaths in the Syrian war when it started. And there was an audible gap. And now, um, of course, uh, we keep kept seeing the veto. And now look at the numbers of, mm. of where we are uh, still at the, with the Syrian war. So I am extremely pessimistic, unfortunately, um, w- regarding what the numbers we have now and what will continue on in the future because of this power of the veto. Chris, would Israel even accept and abide by any re- resolution that was passed, do you think? Well, as Mark, I think, quite rightly said, the key reaction has to come from the US because that is the government which is bankrolling Israel's war effort, frankly. And unless Israel is, unless the Americans are to start talking meaningfully um, about calling Israel to account, literally to account, I think that Israel will carry on. We saw and we've seen people like Biden, Blinken, and other important UN diplomats talking about the importance of Israel abiding by its commitments to international law, obligations under international law, none of that has worked out on the ground. If anything, we've seen an increase. We saw the attack on the south where Israel told civilians it could go to. So, you know, I fear that this is not going to make any difference. And I mean, it's going to make a bad difference, I should say. I think that the council will find find itself increasingly irrelevant, as it has done in previous Mm. conflicts. I mean, although, as Mark says, the important reaction is the Americans, what about the reaction of the billions of people in the global south, who Mr Guterres also represents, 190-plus member states of the United Nations? He is also their secretary-general, and I think it's going to be up to him to try and make the council more relevant, because if as all the people on this panel fear, this is not going to see to lead to meaningful action. I think there's a real credibility problem for the United Nations and indeed the Security Council, because make no mistake, when we start to talk about the reconstruction of Gaza, when we talk about the demining of Gaza in the two, after the 2014 conflict, I remember very well, between 10 and 15 percent of all the ordnance that went in, thousands of pieces the Israelis were firing into Gaza every day, 10 to 15 percent of that was unexploded. Well, it's going to be the UN who's called upon to do yeah. that. The UN, the UN will be called upon to do so much. So, you know, woe betide the Security Council to let that organisation become irrelevant, because if there's cynicism about the UN and scepticism about the UN on the ground, that task of reconstruction uh, and, and redevelopment after and, all of this is going to be all the yes. harder to implement. Yeah. Just picking up on one point uh, that Chris was saying there, Mark, as we mentioned earlier, Guterres has the right to speak at the Security Council without having to be invited uh, by a member state, which is normally the case. It doesn't have the right to vote, obviously. But how important is it that his voice is actually heard? He has been just very, very consistent on this issue. He said three things. He's condemned the Hamas terrorist attacks. He's called for the release of hostages, and he's called for an immediate and enduring ceasefire. And he's joined in those calls by the vast majority of the United Nations member states. His message will be directed mostly at the United States, which is the key holdout around the idea that we need a immediate ceasefire in Israel and Gaza. And, you know, 
the chances of him persuading the Americans on this issue are slight, but it is, I think, nonetheless important institutionally. As Chris noted, he is the secretary general of the entire UN membership, and he is seeking to represent global interests here. Mm. And the chance of this conflict spreading regionally is is high. We're one mistake, miscalculation away from this spreading uh, to the Israel's northern front. We're already seeing regular volleys of attacks between Iranian proxies and the United States and in Syria and Iraq. And, you know, Guterres has this global view. And my sense is that he'll bring that global view to the Security Council and urge in the strongest terms that he possibly can for an immediate ceasefire if nothing else, to lower the temperature in the region Mm. and to save lives on the ground immediately. And obviously there's the reputation of the United Nations to consider as well. I mean, just in the last year, two years or so, there have been many conflicts, notably the war in Ukraine with with Russia, uh, the the conflict in Sudan, Nagorno-Karabakh. Jennifer, do you think that people are starting to lose faith in the UN's ability to actually deal with these major, major conflicts? Yes, and, you know, I, it pains me as a, you know, a diplomatic scholar and a former diplomat uh, to, to say that. But um, regarding the, the major institutional body, the, the UN General Assembly, um, I'm more speaking of the loss of credibility there and less so um, the out branches like UNRWA or UNICEF. Um, I do think around the world, uh, citizens, uh, academics, lawmakers, are are looking at the UN and looking at well what can it actually do? But I think once you we're going we're swinging back around again to the issue of the Security Council. Once you begin unpeeling why it actually is so stuck and why it can't move at a much faster pace than we, we've seen in other regional blocks and other um, multilateral institutions, uh, we find once again we're, we're back to the Security Council and we're back to the issue of the veto. Now, having sat in the hall, and actually Ireland sits directly beside Israel, so I sat beside them for, for years, um, every year the heads of state speak, and even the permanent members alongside the other 190-odd countries, will call in their heads of state week in their speech and say that they need a change and the Security Council needs altering. But year after year after year, we see no change and the Security Council continue to remain as it is. So the credibility comes back uh, once again, and it's lost once again to the, to the issue of Security Council and the issue of the veto in particular. Mm. Chris, I know you touched on this a little bit before, so I want to come to you again on this. Do you think that the UN, uh, the Security Council as it stands now, is, is fit for purpose? Well, no, I obviously don't. I mean, the Security Council, as Jennifer will tell you as a scholar, reflects <clears throat> the state of the world in 1945, except, of course, China is now a permanent member, became a permanent member in, in 1971. But the fact is that the Secretary General is... A, um, going to be speaking at a, 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 a body which doesn't reflect um, the state of the world, which gives powers like the UK, um, which is blindly supporting the US, an inordinately powerful role. But I would like to say that I think that the Secretary-General has an opportunity, and he has an opportunity to speak the truth. And it's the truth which the world knows. So it's not that hard to say. First of all, we all know that it is a lie that Hamas 
can be defeated and therefore Israel mm. needs more time. There mustn't be a ceasefire. Um, you know, for, as my friends in Gaza tell me all the time, for every single um, Hamas fighter that's killed, and indeed for all those civilians that are killed, 10, 20, 30 new radicalized and brutalized members of the younger generation in Gaza are there. It's like, you know, after the IRA, you got the real IRA. And my concern is you're going to get the real Hamas mm. after this. So that's one lie that needs to be, you know, dispensed with. And I think some of the hypocrisy in the council, a light needs to be shone into that. Here you have governments like the UK um, and the US talking about humanitarian concern. Well, the UK's um, contributions to UNRWA in 2021 halved. There they are talking about support for the humanitarian cause concerned for Palestinians. Yeah. UK support for the core budget of UNRWA is going down. So mm. what we need to see is some truth telling. And those are just some very small examples of the what my moral philosophy tutor at university used to call a measurable hypocrisy. And what we need to see is some of these measurable hypocrisies being exposed. And the Secretary General, if he speaks the truth, if he has the moral courage to do that, I think he can begin to redress this whole question of shoring up the credibility of the Security Council moving forward. Mark, some pretty unvarnished criticism uh, of the UN uh, and, and how, it, how it's been operating recently. Is that message actually being heard within the walls of the United Nations? So I think the world sees the Security Council's failure to act in Israel and Gaza, just as they saw the Security Council's failure to act in Ukraine. And they assume that this is the totality of what the Security Council does, that it is paralyzed when a conflict directly involves a veto-wielding member. And that's true. But it's also worth keeping in mind that there's a lot more that the Security Council does. And there are a number of issues on which there is indeed consensus at the Security Council. There are something like a dozen UN peacekeeping missions around the world that require annual renewal. And the Security Council inevitably comes together to renew those peacekeeping missions, just like the one that is helping to keep the lid on conflict in southern Lebanon and northern Israel, the UNIFIL peacekeeping mm. mission. Similarly, just before the uh, October 7th attacks, the Security Council got together in a resolution to support a Kenyan-led peacekeeping mission in Haiti. And there are these kind of routine actions, routine work of the Security Council that really does contribute to peace and security that I think often overlooked in conversations about crises in which a veto-wielding member yeah. of the Security Council has a direct stake. And when it comes to that, the Security Council is indeed paralyzed. And we're seeing, unfortunately, the consequences of that paralysis right now in Palestine and also in Ukraine and for many years mm. in Syria as well. Jennifer, what is actually going to put the brakes on Israel? And is it really up to the US, which we haven't seen, actually put you know enough pressure on Israel to stop killing civilians? What, what, will, it, what will it take, do you think? Well, looking outside the UN, which I fear we're going to have to do uh, in order to um, not get a ceasefire, but uh, to, to use your own uh, correct words, put the brakes on, on Israel. Practically, uh, to get the brakes on, we're going to have to stop the, the U.S. Uh, sending ar army, sending arms, and sending sending funds, and keeping that. But the other, in a more diplomatic solution, 
I think we need to look at this from regional blocks, other multilateral institutions. So the EU needs to speak up the way they did uh, with the invasion of Ukraine. They need to start putting sanctions on Israel, start putting sanctions on the US. I know we are in a cost of living crisis, all uh, mostly caused by the politics mm. of geography and oil and wheat within the uh, European continent. Um, however, you know, what we are witnessing and what we are seeing on our screens, it, it cannot continue. So yeah. the BRICS regional blocks, the EAS, um, the uh, uh, ASEAN, we need to perhaps work in more diplomatic regional blocks and start putting sanctions and then using their own diplomatic voice. Chris, we, we could, uh, Gutierrez, say that there's an impending humanitarian catastrophe, as he's described it. I mean, if, if this bombing campaign, if this war by Israel on, on the people of Gaza, if it doesn't stop, what is going to happen? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, you've already got a situation where 85% of the Gaza Strip has been displaced at least once, if not multiple times. You've got about 50%, if not more, we simply don't know because we don't have access to the north, of the housing stock in Gaza completely mm. flattened as the winter approaches. I mean, if anyone's been to Gaza, they will tell you it's getting pretty cold and there's constant rain. I remember writing a story when I was a spokesman about a child that literally froze to death, died of hypothermia. You've got the out of communicable diseases, watery diarrhoea, which is a mass killer if left unchecked. So first of all, it, we're already in, I don't see this as a pending humanitarian catastrophe. This is a humanitarian yes. um, catastrophe. Um, but I suppose what I would say in the bigger picture is all of the above that Jennifer said. I fully endorse everything she said. But I think big picture, there has to be a realisation within Israel itself. And let's be clear, the change will also and predominantly have to come within Israel itself. Now, when you've got far-right politicians talking about dropping nuclear bombs and mm. endorsing biblical genocides, well, clearly we're a long way away from that change Indeed. coming within Israel. But okay. I do think, having said that, if you allow me to say, the mythology that was in Israel, that since the occupation, since 67, Israel could manage this conflict, build walls, impose an apartheid system in the West Bank, in, arrest their children in the middle of the night, blockade Gaza, all of that. The myth has been explained. Israel cannot manage the conflict, which is what it had been told it could believe since 67. Israel now has to realise it has to resolve the conflict. Israel depends on the Palestinians for their security, as we saw so tragically on the okay. 7th of October. And the Palestinians have to realise they will only get their state from Israel. It's a terrible home truth to have to realise if you're in the region, but it's those internal dynamics on the Palestinian and yes. the Israeli side which are ultimately going to make the difference. OK, thank you. We're going to have to leave it there, but we really do appreciate uh, your time and your insight. Mark Leon Goldberg, Jennifer Cassidy and Chris Gunnis, thank you so much. This episode was produced by Demet Fleming, Katia Lopez-Horian, Abla Kla, Stefan Alabek and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Fadzal Yaya. The programme was edited by Vishnu Sheila, Lynn Yuyen, Vanessa Keneally and Joe DeFries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you very much for listening. Tune in on Saturday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take... Thousands of asylum seekers in the UK may soon find themselves in Rwanda after a new treaty that could determine their future. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.